this morning. If you're a guest with us, my name's Tim. I'm a pastor here. Thank you again for choosing to be here with us this morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 is where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the seat back around you. And if you don't uh, own a Bible, you can keep that. That's our gift to you. Uh, we love giving Bibles away. And if you know someone who needs a Bible, you can uh, take that and give it to somebody as well. So please uh, go ahead and take those. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9. Um, as you're turning there, I'd like to thank one of our uh, serving groups, our hospitality team. Our hospitality team, their goal is that when people come in, even if, if someone comes in, a stranger, no matter who comes in to our churches, when they leave, they leave as a friend. They leave as family. Um, and so they, they come and they set up to make sure that um, seatbacks are organized. They come and make sure that the place is just welcoming and friendly. Um, they come to set the tone early in the morning. They come to set the tone of um, just making this a place that people want to be, uh, be a place where people can rest. Um, there's a group, there's, there's two ladies who come early to, to make the coffee and, and put out the pastries. Um, that's part of our hospitality. And really just the genuine, want people to genuinely know that you are loved and cared for. And we're just thankful that you're here. So everybody on the hospitality team, thank you so much uh, for being involved in that. If that's a ministry, that's something that you're interested in, you'd like more information, you can use those connect cards Monica talked about, um, Circle Hospitality Team on the back, and Sarah will reach out uh, to get you some more information. So, um, so as I said, we're going to be in Mark chapter 9 this morning, continuing our series through the book of Mark. Uh, and as we do that, we are in this season of preparation, right? We are in a season of Lent. It's a time for us to slow down, to focus, and to listen. Because Easter weekend, uh, April 19th to 21st, uh, Easter weekend has a lot going on, right? It's a, it's a long weekend. I talked about this at our Ash Wednesday service, is that um, Easter weekend has a lot going on. There's the, the somber, the serious, the sometimes uncomfortable nature of what Good Friday is. Um, and it's hard and it's messy. And we leave that Good Friday service kind of feeling the weight of that. And we grieve and we mourn what happened there. And then you get into Saturday. And Saturday is this kind of nebulous time of just like you're still kind of processing through Friday. But you haven't quite gotten to Sunday yet. You know, you're still ironing your, you know, your Easter suit and everything. But you're not quite there yet. And then we get to Sunday, and Sunday is this awesome and vibrant and beautiful and fun, and we're going to have breakfast, and there's going to be an Easter egg hunt, and it's a great day, and you have time with family and friends, and it's awesome. But you have these emotional, like, up and down and up and down Easter weekend. It's a lot going on. And so over the course of time, the church has developed this season to help us prepare for that weekend. And we call that Lent. It's a time to consider the role of, our sin played in Christ's death and a time to evaluate and say, Lord, where in my life can I put something down? Can I set something aside so that I can take up more of you? So that I can see more of you in my life? To see and know more of Jesus. That should be the heart and desire of every Christian. And so these, these two ideas is kind of where we find ourselves this morning, even in the text, of a preparation getting ready for Easter, and also this desire, this longing in us to know Jesus more, to know him deeper. And so that's where we are, not only in Lent, but it fits perfectly with where we are in the text this morning. So I'm going to pray, and then we will jump in uh, to Mark chapter 9. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day, another opportunity to celebrate, to rejoice, to just be with you and be with one another, this gift of community that you have given us, um, this ability for us to connect with one another, this ability for us to come boldly and loudly and proclaim 
uh, our worship of you to proclaim your glory and your awesomeness and your holiness. Lord, as we jump into uh, the word, as we open up the word that you have given us, this tangible gift of you revealing yourself to us through scripture, uh, Lord, help us to focus, help us to hear uh, you, because you have a message for us this morning. You have us in this passage on this Sunday for a reason. And so, God, I pray that whatever distractions, whatever baggage, whatever stuff we got going on, that we can set those things aside and we can just hear from you and hear from your word this morning. Lord, as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in Mark chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man, that he sh- of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So I want to catch us up, because we, we took a week off, and, and you know, it's good, and I love breaking down you know, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, um, but sometimes when we're studying scripture, we need to take a step back and kind of remember the big context of what's going on in the text. Um, and so chapter 8, the, what leads into what we just read, chapter 8 happens over the course of like three to five days, depending on travel. And I want to kind of just summarize very quickly those events in chapter 8 that lead us to this big mountainside moment. So right at the beginning of chapter 8, Jesus feeds the 4,000, right? This is the second time he's fed a large group with just a couple of fish and bread. He feeds the 4,000, um, and right after that, he has a confrontation with the Pharisees. The Pharisees demand a sign from God, some kind of something from God that says that Jesus uh, is working for God, that Jesus' power comes from God. And Jesus tells them, you're not going to get that, so just move on. Um, you skip down to verse 14 of chapter 8. Jesus is on the boat, is in the boat um, with the disciples, and basically right after that conversation with the Pharisees, he's warning the disciples of the influence the Pharisees have had um, and can have in their way of thinking. The disciples are worried about how much bread they have in the boat. They're, they're totally oblivious to what they just saw Jesus do. He just fed 4,000 people with a couple of fish and loaves of bread. They're on a boat with one loaf, and they're arguing about where are they going to eat. And Jesus is saying to them, look, the, the Pharisees don't believe. The Pharisees don't actually have eyes like you guys have. They don't have the ability to see what you guys see. You need to pay attention because this way, this creeping in, this doubt, this fear that you guys have, that's what the Pharisees have. And you need to let go of those things. And then we see in verse 22, Jesus heals a blind man. But it's a different healing than any of the other healings he's done throughout Mark because he does, it's a progressive healing. 
Right? He puts his hands on the blind man, and he takes him off, and he says, can you see? The blind man tells him, well, I can see people, but they're fuzzy. They look like walking trees. And then Jesus puts his hands on him again, and he says, can you see? He says, yes, I see everything clearly. It's a different kind of healing. Usually when Jesus heals someone, they're healed. This is a progressive healing because this is not just for the blind man. This is for his disciples. He's teaching the disciples, look, you had no sight whatsoever. And over time, you're starting to see. You're starting to see some things. It's still fuzzy, but you're starting to see. You're starting to understand what I'm doing and who I am. But we've got to get you to clear sight. We've got to get you to fully understand what's going on. And it's right after that in verse 27 of chapter 8 that Peter confesses Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the one that God, that the people have been waiting for. And from that point, from, uh, from Peter's declaration of who Jesus is, it is this turning point in Mark. The whole beginning half of Mark, these first eight chapters, really have led up to talking about who is Jesus as he lives out this role of Messiah and Son of God. What does that mean? And having people start to see that. But from here on out, it becomes, what has he come to do? Now that you understand who I am, you guys need to understand what I have come to do because it's different than what you believed. It's different than what you thought it was going to be. And Jesus speaks into that in verse 31 where he's teaching on his, what's going to come to him, the death and resurrection and the seriousness of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Peter then hears all of that conversation. He pulls Jesus aside and tells Jesus, hey, lay off the death talk. The Messiah doesn't have to suffer and die. What are you saying? Jesus puts him in his place, rebukes him in front of everyone and says, no, Peter, you still have those fuzzy eyes. You don't see what's actually going on. You don't understand what I have come to do. You don't understand that I have come that I might suffer and die for the sins of the world. And so it's from there that we pick up into what has happened here on this mountain. In verse 2, it says, six days later, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, the, other, the inner three, up to this mountain. So we're really, we're talking about a week, week and a half time between all of the things that we just covered and now this moment on this mountain. He takes Peter, James, and John. So Jesus has the 12 disciples and then he's got three, uh, three guys he spends a lot more time with. Three guys he keeps kind of close. One commentary I read, this has nothing to do with it, I just thought it was interesting. We always talk about that Peter, James, and John are like the leaders of the disciples. Peter was impulsive and made a lot of bad decisions. James and John, their nickname from Jesus was the Sons of Thunder because they wanted to rain down fire on a town that rejected Jesus. One commentary said, maybe it's just that these three were kind of the problem children and Jesus needed to keep them close. Like, they, they needed a little more time. And I read that, I was like, that makes a lot of sense. That's a whole other conversation. I just thought it was interesting. So they go up on this mountain, and it says he was transfigured before them. So just when you think, if you're a disciple, if you're one of these three, just when you think things couldn't get any more confusing, things couldn't get more overwhelming, things maybe have just settled down. Okay, we had all this stuff going on. He's doing miracles. He's talking about death and resurrection. But now maybe things can settle. They go up on this mountain, and he is transfigured before them. The word is metamorpho. It's where we get our word metamorphosis, to change. In Matthew's account of this event, it says that Jesus' face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. In Luke's, it says his face was altered. His clothes were dazzling white. And as we read in Mark, his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Jesus, in this moment, changes. He changes from the son of the carpenter from Nazareth 
that he had been known as, and for the first time he reveals his true and proper form. But notice, he doesn't like take a mask off. He doesn't like take his carpenter mask off and, haha, now I'm God. And he doesn't take on another body. It says he becomes radiant. It says his face shines as the sun. His clothes radiate light. This is him in his natural state. And even that description of him is humans trying to describe, trying to put words to what just happened. God in the flesh revealing himself. It's not a light that shines around him, right? Heaven didn't have this giant spotlight, like an angel wasn't like, boom, Jesus. It's not that the light shines around him, but rather this light, this radiance, shines through him, shines from him. But even that isn't the miracle that's going on here. One of the commentaries I read said it, basically, I'm going to paraphrase him, but Jesus being transfigured isn't the miracle at hand. Rather, this is Jesus pressing pause on the miracle that has been happening his whole life. He has kept himself restrained. He has held back his radiance. He has held back his glory for 30-something years. And here, for the first time, he presses pause on the ongoing miracle that's been going on his whole life. This is Jesus, no restrictions, no holding back, and he does this Why? He does this for the disciples' good. Because with all the tension, all the confusion going on, we got Peter proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus confirming that, but then telling them he's got to suffer and die, him and Peter getting into it, there's a lot of tension, there's a lot of confusion. And it's one thing for them to follow Jesus to see the miracles, to hear the teaching, to believe. But now, here for the first time, he removes any doubt. He removes any worry or confusion that may have been tied to the death and resurrection. Because he's basically saying, look, yes, the death, the suffering and death has to come, but I'm still going to be glorified in the end. This is Jesus saying to Peter, James, and John, and later to the twelve, you were right to believe. You were right to trust that I am the I am because I am. See it with your own eyes right now. He had shown it through his words. He had shown it through his teaching. He had demonstrated it through his actions. And now here on this mountain, he puts the glory and power and majesty and holiness of God on full display. And in doing so, in this moment, Jesus does as he often does, connects and ties together the Old Testament to himself. And this happens through the visitors we see, through the cloud, and through the voice. So I want to talk about each of those separate elements. Um, And so we have some visitors that show up on the mountain with Jesus and the the disciples. It says in verse 4, Elijah and Moses appear with him and talk with Jesus. Elijah and Moses. These two men represent two important elements of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. They represent God's faithfulness, his power, his promises to God's people. So let's talk about Moses. You can't talk about the history of the Israelites without talking about Moses. God's people were in slavery for hundreds and hundreds of years in Egypt. And it's Moses God sends to Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses, following God's leading, leads Israel out of slavery and toward the promised land. The land that God had set aside for them to dwell in as his people. Once they are out of Egypt, once they have passed through the Red Sea, they stop and they make camp at Mount Sinai. It's at this mountain that God would make the Israelites a real unified people. They, had been, they wouldn't, didn't have really an identity. They didn't really have a, a place to call home. They weren't really unified because they had been slaves for hundreds and hundreds of years. 
Now, for the first time, God's going to gather them all together and make them a people. And one of the ways he does that, Moses gives the Israelites from God the Ten Commandments. And after the Ten Commandments, the law from God to the Israelites. Moses is identified with the law. It is the set of rules and structures from God on how the people were going to live, how they were going to live in a way that was best for them and would be glorifying to God. They were going to live different than every other nation in the world. And in their difference, in the way that they lived, in the way that God provided for them, in their obedience to him, the other people of the world were going to see the glory of God. They were going to be this lighthouse that was pointing people to God. That was the intent. The law guided their lives. It was essential to the way they lived. And so for you as an Israelite, if you thought back to the history of your people, you thought back to the promises, you thought back to what God had done, you thought about Moses. You thought about Moses' role in all of that, how important he was to deliver God's people and lead them into being united. And you also thought back to Mount Sinai. The people camped at this mountain, They stay there, and and God calls Moses up to the mountain to talk with him. In Exodus 19, I want to read this, and I want to read this passage to you, um, and I want you to just hear, and hear some of the similar imagery than what we just saw in Mark. In Exodus 19, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. There's this imagery of God's people at a mountain, And God descending down on this mountain in a thick cloud and speaking to them and them hearing the booming voice of God. The imagery of Exodus, Moses on a mountain, a great cloud, God speaking. We see all of that in Mark, but in Mark, somebody else is here. We also have Elijah. Elijah's there. God had many prophets throughout the time. A prophet was someone who spoke the word of God. Most of their job was to go usually to the Israelites and tell them, you have fallen away from being this lighthouse. You have chosen false gods. You have chosen immorality. You need to come back to God before judgment happens. That was a lot of what the prophets did. But they also spoke to those leaders and rulers who were unjust. They spoke the word of God. There was many men and women who proclaimed that word, but Elijah was special among them. He did a lot of amazing things. That's going to be a sermon series down the road. He's the one that stood up to the king and queen at the time. He confronts them regarding their false gods. Elijah prays, and it doesn't rain in the land for three years. In 1 Kings 18, you can read about how Elijah, standing on the top of Mount Carmel, another mountain, confronted the prophets of Baal, a false god, and in that confrontation, God rains down fire and reminds the people who the one true God is. He boldly stood up and stood on the word of God and proclaimed fearlessly, regardless of what was going to happen to him. These two men, Moses and Elijah, the one connected with the law and the one connected with the prophets and with the people, both had literal mountaintop moments. They both show up here to talk with Jesus. It's amazing And it's divine. And how in the world could a human possibly take all of this in? You have Jesus in his full radiant glory. You have Moses and Elijah. How in the world is someone supposed to respond to that? Well, we know how. Peter responds in verses 5 and 6. He says, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. 
Peter, we did a whole sermon series on Peter about a year ago. Peter has, as I said earlier, he's impulsive. He oftentimes, his mouth moves quicker than his brain. He speaks without thinking. He is terrified. He literally doesn't know what to say, but he felt like he had to say something. He couldn't help but speak. And so he says, let's make dwelling places for Jesus, for Moses, for Elijah. Side note again, Moses has been dead like 1,300 years at this point. Elijah's been dead like 900 years at this point. How does Peter recognize them? I don't know. Apparently, we're going to know each other. Apparently, in the resurrection, apparently, when that day comes, we're going to know each other. Never never again are you going to have to try and remember somebody's name after you've already introduced yourself to them once and you forgot their name and there's that awkward, hey, you. It's not going to happen in the resurrection. Amen and amen. Peter says, let's make tents for each of these guys. Let's make booths or tabernacles is the word being used. When the Israelites were at Mount Sinai, when they were traveling around the wilderness, they built a tabernacle. Basically, it was a moving worship place, a moving temple that they could pack up and they could travel with it. They could worship in it. Later, they had the actual temple in Jerusalem, but until that time, they had tabernacles that they could move from place to place. If life was messy, if life was chaotic, if you said, I need, I need God in my life, and so I'm going to go to the temple, I'm going to go to the tabernacle, that's where God is. That's where I know I can meet God. That's where I know I can engage with him. And so Peter here is saying, look, let's build some tabernacles. Clearly the presence of God is here. Clearly something big is happening. So, I mean, just look at what's going on. Let's, let's respond here. Now, on one hand, It's a foolish statement by Peter. To equate Moses and Elijah and Jesus, they're not on the same level. As great as Elijah and Moses were, they are not on the same level as Jesus. Peter is making a big error in in putting them all equal. But that's not all of what Peter is saying here. See, what Peter is doing is he's trying to fast forward past the suffering and death that Jesus had talked about. He's trying to fast forward past the suffering and death that Jesus has already said that's what's coming. He is anxious to find the fulfillment of the promised glory now, prior to the suffering that Jesus had announced as necessary. Because Peter is taking in this situation. You got Jesus and his radiant full glory. You got Moses and Elijah on a mountain location. Peter's reading the scene and saying, okay, clearly we're in it now. Clearly it's Messiah time. It's crush Rome time. This is the time where the the day of the Lord has come. So let's build tabernacles because God is dwelling with his people. And that building of tabernacles, there's there's a prophecy in Zechariah that says that the day of the Lord could be tied to the day of Booth, the day of tabernacles. where they It was a festival where everybody built their own little uh, mini tent to stay in. And so what Peter is saying here is, clearly it's time. Clearly, it's, it's time for retribution. It's time for Israel to be redeemed. Now is the time. And we can just skip all that suffering and death stuff that you were talking about, Jesus. He's ignoring what Jesus had already just a week ago told him, saying that there was going to be rejection and suffering and death and resurrection. None of that has happened yet, Peter. But it says out of fear, out of anxiety, being overwhelmed by the situation and trying to force something to happen that wasn't ready to happen yet, In the midst of all of that, Peter speaks. But also then we see two other, the two other elements that I had talked about happen. We see a cloud and we hear a voice in verse 7 and 8. A cloud overshadows them 
and a voice comes out of the cloud. Now, I have said a lot of things in my life. I've said a lot of things that where I did not think before I spoke. I have been immature, inappropriate, and downright just not smart at times. But never in my life have I said something so ridiculous that the Heavenly Father, creator of all existence, had to break in and tell me to stop talking. But that's what he does to Peter. Peter says what he says, and then God says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Peter, stop talking. You don't quite know what you're saying? Just listen to Jesus. A cloud overtakes them, a cloud similar to the cloud that was at Mount Sinai, that led, similar to the cloud that led the Israelites out of slavery as they wandered the desert during the daytime, there was a cloud that they followed. Similarly to a cloud that would fill the Holy of Holies, that said, that reminded them, that tangibly said, God is in your midst. The visible reminder of the presence of God among his people. Not only does God show up, but then he speaks. This is my beloved son, listen to him. God declaring who Jesus is. He said the same thing at the beginning of Mark when Jesus was baptized. Only that time he said it directly to Jesus. He said directly, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God spoke directly to Jesus. This time he speaks and Peter and James and John get to hear it. Peter, James, and John get to know that Jesus is not only the Messiah. He's not only the chosen one that was sent to redeem all people back to God, but he is God in the flesh. And so they need to listen to him and pay attention to the time at hand. Peter, you don't get to skip past what Jesus has already told you is coming. The rejection and pain and death and resurrection, that's still coming. Peter, you need to pay attention to what Jesus is saying. And just like God had done multiple times in the past, he gives his people a tangible way to be assured that God is with them. And for them, he does it again and again with the same promises of protection and hope. Only now, those, protect, those promises of protection and hope and future glory are in Jesus. Because he can do what no one else and nothing else can do. And that's what we see, that's what's symbolized here in verse 8. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Moses was great, but he couldn't do what Jesus is going to do. Elijah was amazing, but could do what Jesus has come to do. Moses and Elijah are but shadows. Even the great, amazing things that we, we read back in the Old Testament and we hold up and say, man, look at the cool things that Moses and Elijah did. Even those things were only done through the power of God. Who those two men were, were but a shadow of who Jesus is. No one can do what Jesus has come to do, go to war with Satan and defeat Satan to bridge the gap that has been broken by sin between us and God to restore the relationship between God and his creation. That's what Jesus came to do. And so they look around and they see no one except Jesus because Jesus alone can do what needs to be done. Jesus alone has the glory, has the power, has the authority to free us from slavery of sin. Yes, Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Jesus is going to lead all of humanity out of the slavery of sin. Elijah was able to go toe-to-toe with false prophets. Jesus himself at the cross defeated Satan and sin and every kind of evil this world could throw at him. This moment, this transfiguration moment was temporary. 
And it's a glimpse of what it's going to be like in the resurrection. It's a glimpse of what it's going to be like in that new day. That's why, Peter, there's no need for a tabernacle. Because the tabernacle was where the the physical, tangible place you had to go to meet God. Jesus has come. You don't need to go anywhere else, Peter. You can go to Jesus because Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is who you can go to to engage with God. The glory of God was made manifest in this moment on the mountain. God intentionally hid his glory so that the people wouldn't see it and be overwhelmed and die in the Old Testament. He intentionally says, when they're camped out on Mount Sinai, don't come near the mountain, don't touch the mountain. When he wants to appear to Moses, he just gets a reflection of God. When he wants to appear to Elijah, he shows him just the back of himself. There was this separation. Jesus here, though, reveals the full glory of God to these three. And they don't die because in Christ there is a new level of intimacy with us and God. So this big mountaintop moment happens and then Jesus says, all right, we've got to go back. And so they start heading down the mountain. And Jesus tells them to keep this to themselves until the resurrection from the dead. It's the first time he's told people don't say anything a couple of different times. This is the first time there's a time limit on it they say you, where he says you can say something after the resurrection. And for once, because we've seen him tell people over and over again, don't say anything about this, and then people ran and go tell everybody. For once, someone actually listens when Jesus says, stay quiet. They waited until after the resurrection. But why the silence? Why can't they tell everybody? Well, if you go back to verse 5, Jesus, or Peter's question, or Peter's statement there about the tabernacles, that kind of shows he still doesn't understand. Even in the midst of what he was seeing, he still doesn't quite understand the reality of the Messiah. He doesn't understand what must happen to Jesus. And then as we see from the conversation that's about to happen as they're coming down the mountain, things are still too fuzzy. And Jesus doesn't want people to be confused. He doesn't want people to be distracted. Because if they come down and start talking about Radiance and Elijah, people are going to start thinking, just like Peter did, that the day is now and there was still work to be done. See, the people are still, the disciples are still trying to understand and process Jesus' declaration, even of that he had to suffer and die. Why? Why does he have to die? And Jesus says, wait until after the resurrection from the dead. But why? Why do we have to wait? They're still trying to understand this, not understand what does he mean by resurrection. They knew what resurrection was. They anticipated, the Israelites anticipated a resurrection in the new day, in the day of the Lord. They're still wrapping their heads around, why does Jesus have to suffer and die? Why does the Messiah have to suffer and die? Especially in light of what they just saw on the mountain. Why would Jesus need to die? How... How could he die if he really is God in the flesh? If we just saw what we saw, why does he still have to die? Peter, James, and John discussed this among themselves, trying to understand this question. And then they asked Jesus a question. So there's one question they don't ask Jesus about the resurrection, but they do ask him about Elijah. It says in verse 11, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Basically, again, they're admitting Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus, if you are who you say you are, if you're the Messiah, who we believe you to be, we know from Malachi, we know that Elijah is supposed to come and get everything ready. There's a prophecy that says, God said he's going to send Elijah to prepare the way for you. So if you're you, 
where's Elijah? Because again, they're still trying to process everything that they've seen and heard over this last week and a half. Trying to put things together that they've been experiencing. And so they think it's time for Jesus to go into full crush Rome mode. And maybe even that amount, that appearance of Elijah on the mountain was enough to fulfill the scriptures. Well, they saw Elijah, so now maybe it's time. Jesus responds to them to try and slow them down and point them forward. He responds to them and he agrees that Elijah is going to come to restore all things. But Jesus adds a twist. He mentions again the need for suffering and contempt. But if Elijah is going to restore all things and everything is restored, why then is there still suffering and contempt? See, Jesus is again teaching the disciples that glory and suffering are not mutually exclusive to him and not mutually exclusive to one another. And in fact, it is through suffering that God is going to be glorified. It is through the suffering of Jesus that God will be glorified. But the question remains, where's Elijah? Well, Mark doesn't make it as explicit as the other Gospels, but we've already seen the one who would fill into that role. John the Baptist was that next coming of Elijah. It was John's role to step into the ministry of what Elijah had done. His ministry was to preach. And what did he preach? Repent, be baptized, the kingdom of God is near. Repent, be baptized, someone greater than me is coming. John lived similarly, and a lot of who he was was a throwback and a reminder to who Elijah was. Jesus here is telling them in a very veiled way that John lived into the role. That prophecy about Elijah preparing the way, that's fulfilled in John. And they, he says, they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Now, nowhere in the Old Testament does it talk about Elijah needing to suffer. But if you look at the life of Elijah, like I said, that's a sermon series in the future. He stood up to the king and queen at the time, and after that, they hunted him, and they persecuted him, and they tormented him. In the same way, John was persecuted and arrested and killed by Herod and Herodias. They have him killed for doing the same thing Elijah did, preach the word of God. Elijah suffered for the glory of God. John suffered and died for the glory of God. Jesus is going to suffer and die and rise again for the glory of God, for the defeat of sins, for the reconciliation of us to God. And so he says, look, you guys are still have this fuzzy look on things. John the Baptist was that guy. Elijah has come to restore all things, to get all things ready. We're a lot farther along than you think we are. You want us to be... You want us to be at the end. We're not there, but we are moving that way. Because, like I said, from when Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, everything here, Jesus is trying to get to Jerusalem. He's getting his way to Jerusalem so that he can die and rise again. We see in this passage the disciples are confused and overwhelmed by the events of probably most of these couple of years, but really this last week and a half. They're confused and they're overwhelmed. And so Jesus takes a couple of them up to this mountain and reveals the glory of God. Gives them this moment of, rest assured, you can trust me. Just because there's going to be suffering and death doesn't mean there's not coming glory. God shows up for them. God will always show up. 
When you are confused, when you are overwhelmed, when you are doubting, when you are worried, God will show up. It may not be as direct. It may not be a glorified transfiguration on a mountain. But he's always going to show up for you. He is faithful. And it is his desire that you know him better and deeper. He wants you to know him. And so he gave us Jesus, God in the flesh, that we can look to and say, how does God interact with in certain situations? What does God care about the poor? How does God care about the marginalized? Let's look at how Jesus cared about him. He gave us Jesus to say, look, you can engage with me through Christ. Jesus is God in the flesh. You can engage with him. He gave us scripture, God's written word for us to know him more. He gave us the gift of community to be able to process and work through these things and do this life together. God gave us multiple gifts and ways to encounter more and more of him. If you are confused, overwhelmed, lost, and crying out, God is going to show up if you go looking for him. He promises that and he is faithful to do that. The disciples are still at this time so concerned with how God is supposed to act. They're so concerned with what he's supposed to be, what the Messiah is supposed to be, what they had decided was the way things were supposed to go. They still have this fuzzy sight. They're close, but they don't quite get it. In their heads is this specific way that God is supposed to act, and it blinds them to what Jesus is actually doing. Especially in this season of Lent, I encourage you, set aside what you think God is supposed to be doing in your life what you think God is supposed to be doing in this world. Set aside how you think he is supposed to act because he knows better than you and he is all good. And those two realities mean that he is going to do what is best and what is good every time. And we might not understand it, we might not be able to see it, but God is all good, all faithful, and all powerful, and all knowing, and all a lot of other characteristics that we could keep doing for days and days. Because of who he is, he knows best, and he loves you. He cares for you and wants what's best for you. So quit trying to worry about what you think he's supposed to do and rest in, set that aside and rest in what he's doing because he is all good and he knows what's best. Confess and repent of your own ego and submit to the reality that God knows you and loves you and will do what is best for you. Rest and rejoice in a God who is willing and willingly and deliberately goes to the cross to suffer and die for you. Jesus doesn't fast forward like Peter wants him to. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to be rejected and suffer and die. He willingly sets aside his divine right as king to come to earth, to take on humanity, to suffer and die for us so that we might have life and life abundant, so that we might find true life and freedom through his life, death, burial and resurrection for anyone who would put their faith in Jesus and him alone for the payment for their sins and for the new life that is being offered. There is grace and forgiveness and new life to be had. That's love. What Christ came to do is love and grace. We didn't deserve it. We can't earn it. But God loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. That's the God you serve. Rest and rejoice in this God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today and we thank you for your word and we thank you that you remind us that you show up, that you are there, that when we feel lost, when we feel 
like we are wandering the darkness, you show up and reveal yourself to us. God, help us to be quiet enough, humble enough uh, to see those times and places when you are showing up. Help us, especially in this season of Lent, to slow down and look and see those places, see those areas where you are speaking to us, where you are doing as you are always doing, calling out to us to know us, to have us know you deeper and better. God, you have a plan in place. You are doing all things for your glory. And we might not understand it. We might not see the whole picture. We, many of us, most of us, all of us are still looking at things with fuzzy eyes. Well, we can't see the whole picture. We can't see all of what you're doing. But we can trust and know that you are good, that you are for us and not against us. And we can trust in that and rest in that. God, help us to trust in that and rest in that because it's hard. It's hard to see pain, to experience pain and suffering and hardship. It's hard to do that and go through this life and feel like we don't know what's coming, we don't know what's next, and maybe just everything's going to be the worst all the time. Lord, it's easy for us to get overwhelmed by those things. Remind us that you are good. Remind us you are for us. Remind us that you love us and care for us and want what's best for us. Give us a hunger and a thirst for your word to dive deep in and see and read and memorize and know the promises you have for us, the character about yourself that you reveal to us in your word. Lord, help us to just be able to rest and trust that you are who you say you are and that you, your goodness is greater than anything this world can throw. And as we do that, Lord, help us, give us the power as we go out into the world to be the lights of the world that you have called us to be. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen.